You know, we haven't actually had a good hand clap in forever since we haven't had this many people in the room at the same time. And I would like to thank everybody who's made this live music possible, including the tech folks who have been diligently working and the praise team. So can we give God a hand on their behalf? I, uh, I was really fighting discouragement when I found out that we still can't stream, and it's not the tech people's fault, and I also know that the reason we haven't heard back from the person from the high school is because they are inundated with stuff trying to get back into their new semester, and I'm sure he's got a list of fixed tickets in his inbox that are just outrageous. So when I try to put myself in somebody else's shoes, and I know what they're dealing with, it helps me throttle it back and say, okay, God is in control, <laughs> and he's going to turn this into a Romans 8.28 thing, and I'm sure that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even though we're having to edit our morning services as quickly as we can and putting them out there after the fact, God's in control. And I keep reminding myself of that and being able to sing of his attributes this morning helped me kind of relax into his grace again, because we need those reminders, I do, that he is still in control, because I find myself getting into my flesh and getting into those anxious moments, and I work myself up more than I should. And that's why it's good for us to look at things like this question. Does God control everything? We sang a lot about God's attributes just now, and one of the songs even used the word sovereign. And I wanted to look at that today. I looked at it, as I mentioned before, about a year and a half, maybe a little more than a year and a half ago. Totally different set of materials. In fact, right now, there may be some on our Facebook page who are looking at a podcast that my friend Rick and I have done. We're using even different materials than this. So it's three different materials, three different messages, same question, same topic. Because it's a deep enough question that you can't easily answer it with just one message. And so you, being our premier subscribers and being in the room, <laughs> you're getting the primo stuff today, even before the rest of the folks. And no extra charge. Uh, there are some decisions, looking back at my own life, that I realize changed my life. I mean, changed the destiny of my life in big ways. One of them was choosing which college to attend. And I didn't know that you were supposed to apply to a whole bunch of different colleges. I just knew I wanted to go to this one college, and so I applied. And somebody said, where else have you applied? And I said, you're supposed to apply other places? <laughs> I said, well, what if you don't get in? He goes, I said, no, no problem, I'll get in. And I got in. But I got there and realized that engineering was not supposed to be for me. And so I changed my major after one semester. And I started to go into the direction of music, which I loved. But because of that, that school was not really going to be a great fit for me. So I made another big decision at the end of only one year of college, and I changed colleges. And I lived at home with my parents, God bless them, and I drove to school four miles away so that I could have free room and board. Again, God bless them. I was able to graduate with no student loans. I know, that doesn't happen very often, but part of that is that I met the woman at Grand Canyon College in Phoenix, um, who became my meal ticket for getting through school, because she was working at the college in the business office, and so I got free tuition, so that helped a lot. 
But those two decisions changed the course of my life a lot. First of all, going to the school up in Flagstaff, it was a state school, secular school, and then going to a Christian college down in Phoenix, very, very, very different kind of uh, environment there, as you can imagine. And I changed my major, as I mentioned, into music composition, and my major instrument was trombone. So I say all that because it's setting up something that's happening 40 years later, all right? So then, 40 years later, somebody pestered me to join the Washtenaw Community Concert Band. And I say pester, she was very kind about it, but she asked me more than once, I think three or four times, in fact, said, we could really use some trombone players. Are you sure you wouldn't like to come and check it out? And so I did. And another big decision was made the very first night I showed up because somebody was handing out our folios with the music in it. And she said, uh, we have a third trombone part and a first trombone part, which would you like? Well, there was another fellow that had stepped up there too. And if you're going to be humble, you say, oh, I'll take the third trombone part. But I wasn't humble because I can't play that low. <laughs> I was so used to playing the first part that that was my range. And I said, well, I've been used to playing first part when I was playing, which was a long time ago. There's no guarantees that I'll be able to hit that. The other guy said, oh, no, I've been used to playing third and fourth parts. I would much rather have the third. So then I felt better about taking the first trombone part. But the reason that was important is because they sat me down next to this guy named Wayne, who was the only guy in the band who'd been in there for the entire 40 years of the band's existence. So he knew everything about the band. Good trombone player. Well, just a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, I had the privilege and honor of performing, officiating the funeral for Wayne's wife, who passed away from cancer after a long battle with COPD. And it turns out that Wayne's daughter was our church secretary when I first started at Living Water 19 years ago. Now, don't tell me that there wasn't some sort of divine direction involved all the way back in choosing a different change of major, choosing trombone as my major instrument, all the things that factored into my being able to actually get into this family's life and minister to them in a very profound way. And they touched my life in a very deep way, too. It was a really neat connection. There are certain things in my life that when I look back, I think, I really don't think those things were coincidental. I see God's guiding hand at work, and yet he works through my decisions. So that's what we're going to look at today. Was God's providence involved in all those experiences and relationships? I would say yes. Absolutely they were. Did God use my free will to factor into getting me where his will was going to be accomplished? I would again say, yep, I think so. So, was God in complete control, or did I have free will? And the answer is, yes. I know it seems strange, doesn't it? I believe that both of these things are true. These two truths exist simultaneously because God is big enough and smart enough and he has all those omni-attributes that are perfectly integrated so that he can not only allow us free will, but still govern everything. So let's define some terms as we dive into this, because it gets a little bit intellectual here, but we need to grasp it. Divine providence can be defined this way. The governance, and I like that term, governance, it's that leadership. The leadership or governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for, and directs all things in the universe. So, by that definition, 
the principle of divine providence means that God is in control of all things. It means he's sovereign. Sovereign simply means having complete authority. And I believe God is completely sovereign. So what is he sovereign over? Well, let's look at a few of them. God is sovereign over the universe. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. From there he rules over everything. He rules over the physical world. Our Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's talking kind of a double entendre there because there's a meaning there which means that even bad things can happen to good people. But it is also talking about the physical world because of sun rising and the rain falling. He also rules over the nations of the earth. Psalm 66. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. He rules over human destiny as well. Galatians 1.15. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. What a concept. And then he rules over human success and failure. Luke 1.52. He has brought down the mighty from their throne, as we saw in our study in the book of Daniel and some of those Nebuchadnezzars that were in there. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up those of lowly position. Now, we need to understand, because this is a very different view than a lot of the views that are being put forth in our universities today, because God, uh, God governs everything this way in all these areas, this doctrine, this principle of God's sovereignty is directly, diametrically opposed to the idea that the universe is governed by chance. And it's diametrically opposed to those who might buy into the idea that there's some fate involved, some fates. You know where fates come from? It comes from Greek mythology. They were the three sisters who wove the threads of fate on a great loom. And there are no such things as fates that are determining our steps. God is in charge of all of this. So the laws of nature are at work in the universe. These laws of nature have no inherent power on their own. Rather, they are the principles that God has set in place to govern how things normally work. An apple falls from the tree and you're under that, it's going to hit your head. Why? It's a law of nature. It's a principle that's put in place so that everything works according to his design. Why are they called laws? Because God decreed them. Now, we have this pendulum swing that we need to look at on this chart or this graph that I've thrown up there for you. We humans tend to want to swing a pendulum to extremes, like Billy Joel's song, I Go to Extremes. We want to swing to one of these two extremes regarding God's sovereignty and man's free will. One extreme, the one to the left on the diagram, emphasizes the sovereignty of God to the point that we humans are really not much more than just robots. If he's controlling everything, then I can't really make any choices on my own because clearly he's in charge, and so I just have to be able to do everything he tells me to do, and that's it. Simple. We've simply been doing what we've been programmed to do if we take that extreme approach. Now, swing that pendulum whoosh, to the other side, and what have you got? It emphasizes our free will to the point that God does not have complete control, nor does he have complete knowledge over all things which we believe he does. So, as I mentioned last week, 
These two extremes try to pit at least one or more of God's attributes against the other attributes, these omni-attributes. And when we do that, it diminishes God's character. Let's look at these omni-attributes real quick again. All of these attributes are perfectly balanced. They're perfectly integrated. So neither of these two pendulum swings are correct. I like this term. Some scholars have called God's sovereignty and man's free will twin truths. Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor, was asked this question. How can you reconcile the apparent contradiction between these two truths? And I've quoted him before, and I'll quote him again because I like this quote. He said, oh, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I don't need to reconcile what God has joined together. But as I looked at this topic a little over a year and a half ago, I was using a different set of scriptures, but this time I really want to zero in on several scriptural examples of what I'm talking about so that you can see that this is a biblical balanced concept. In the podcast that some are looking at, I've used a little bit more in the way of illustration and analogy, but this one I'm really diving into scripture today because you need to know that this comes from scripture. Here's one biblical example. I've used it several times. It comes from the life story of Joseph. You know, Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat. Well, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. One of them actually wanted to kill him at first, and the other one said, hey, we can make more money if we sell him. And he goes, oh, that's not a bad idea. We get rid of, get rid of our conceited, big-headed brother, and we get money in the process. So, yeah, let's do that. So they sold him to a band of people passing through and got him sold into slavery. He had a lot of setbacks, if you follow his story in Genesis. And then we find out that God kept elevating him in his position because he was so wise and such a good leader. He had so many really God-given spiritual gifts, I think, that were at play, including one of the setbacks that he was thrown in prison for doing something he hadn't done. Somebody gave a false accusation and he was thrown in prison. Finally, when he got back out of prison again, he continued to show how good a leader he was and he was elevated because of God. God was with Joseph to being second only to Pharaoh himself. That was important because they knew that there was a famine coming. He was put in charge of all these grain silos and barns so that they could start stockpiling, getting ready for the famine, which means they were going to have a commodity that everybody else around them needed which made them very powerful. And God had Joseph right in the middle of all that. Well, we also find out that that helped continue to keep alive the family members of Joseph, who were the people that became the Jews, through which the descendants of these Jews were going to be the Messiah coming out of that line. So God was up to something. And even though the brothers finally found out, oh my goodness, this guy that we're coming before is our brother, and he's the second most powerful man in Egypt, he's probably going to off with our heads or something once he discovers, because we sold him into slavery, and they just knew he was going to kill him. But I love what Joseph says, because Joseph recognized that God had been sovereign through this whole process. He says this, Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose so he could preserve the lives of many people as you can see to this day. A redemptive purpose, and God carried it out. Were there a lot of different decisions being made? Absolutely, all the way along the way, including the decision to sell them into slavery. Was God still sovereign? 
Yep, both were true. Here's a modern illustration of this redemptive aspect of God. I told you a few weeks ago that uh, our family attended a funeral for a really dear, sweet man who had served in the military. He's a real hero, Tom Cunningham. And I spoke to his son, Dan, who is my brother-in-law's brother, which doesn't make him anything, but that's who he is. And so he's an important guy. He's just not related to me per se. But I spoke to Dan and I said, Dan, how long has it been since you got your heart transplant? He goes, oh, that's right. You were there at U of M waiting in the waiting room that day, weren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, it's been 13 years. I said, man, that's remarkable. And I said, "Uh, what's the prognosis for that? He says, they say that a good average heart can last about 10. So I've had three bonus years already and I'm going strong. He says, in fact, next week I'm going fishing. So Dan just has such a great outlook and he says, every day is a gift from God and I've got more than I even bargained for. So all this is a gift. But how did Dan get that heart? This is where God's providence and our prayers and free will all kind of mesh together and we have to shake our heads and think, how is this possible? There was a young kid who broke the law. He sinned. He got terribly drunk. He crossed a center line on a highway and hit an innocent 19-year-old driver. That 19-year-old kid had a strong heart. The family of that kid knew that if anything terrible or tragic should happen, they still wanted it to be a blessing if possible, so they had signed a donor card, and this guy's heart was given to Dan. So Dan, who had a heart that was just barely pulsating, only enough to barely get the blood pumping through his veins, was just next to death, received a 19-year-old strong, healthy heart. Now, sin was involved, so somebody made a choice. An innocent life was taken. All those involved choices. Could good possibly come out of that? Dan would say yes. His family would say yes. Was God sovereign over all those circumstances, including the choices that were made? Yeah, I think so. Here's another example. You'll be kept safe. Now station a guard. We see an example of God's sovereignty being in balance with these twin truths in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. This is when Nehemiah is leading the people of God, the people of Israel, to rebuild the wall that had been torn down by the Babylonian takeover. And the wall around Jerusalem, it was like a walled city, so it was a fortress. And they were huge. This was a big wall. And it was a gated community, long before gated communities were popular. And those wooden gates are also very huge, but the Babylon uh, army, Babylonian army, had burned those wooden gates, and so it needed a lot of repair. We'll pick it up in verse 8 of Nehemiah 4. All of them, enemies of Israel, conspired together to move with armed forces against Jerusalem and to create a disturbance in it. So, we pray to our God. Now, if they stopped there and said, and God protected them, that would be a great story. But look what he says next in verse 9. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard. Ah, so they prayed and trusted in the God who is sovereign, and they posted a guard. So God's people prayed for his protection. He protected them, and he instructed the people through their leaders, post a guard. Both are happening simultaneously. Did it mean that they weren't trusting God by posting a guard? No, they were supposed to do that. They prayed, and this was one of the answers to their prayer that God had provided for them, and that's part of how they were protected because God was giving them a practical outgrowth of what they knew would help save them. 
So if they believed that God was sovereign, shouldn't they have simply said, thank you, Lord, for answering our prayer. We don't have to post a guard because you're going to protect us. Well, they might have tried that, but that's not what the Bible says happened there. They posted a guard. So here's some things that I think we can take from this principle. Yes, we should pray for safe travels. We do that when we get ready to go on a long trip. We'll stop and have a little prayer of uh, traveling mercies and say, God, we really need your traveling mercies because have you seen the other drivers that are out there today? And uh, so we pray for him to protect us if it's his will, but we also buckle our seatbelts. Pray for good health and eat more fruits and vegetables. Pray for your friend to know Jesus and share your faith. Can you see how sometimes these twin truths need to coexist? Because God is sovereign, absolutely. And there is human responsibility that factors into our trusting the God who is sovereign. Here's another one. Good example from Scripture. You will be healed. Now apply this remedy. This is coming to us from something that Isaiah had said to King Hezekiah. He was a bit of a rascal. And he was stricken with a terminal illness. And God's prophet Isaiah was sent to deliver, deliver some words to Hezekiah. And so he was going to tell him, he said, well, Hezekiah, I got bad news for you. You're going to die. And Hezekiah turned to the Lord, and he was very contrite, and he prayed, and he was going, oh, Lord, please grant me some more life. So Isaiah received this word from the Lord, and Isaiah passed it along to Hezekiah, what God had told him to say. He said, I have heard your prayer. And I have seen your contrition, or I have seen your tears. Look, I will add 15 years to your life. Isaiah 38.4 Clearly, Isaiah sees that God, who is sovereign, is answering Hezekiah's prayer. I would think that would be pretty exciting to say, yeah, he's going to answer your prayer 15 more years. Wow, but then look what else Isaiah says to Hezekiah. It's farther down the page because there's sort of a recap of the events that had taken place there. And in this recap, we see that along with his uh, proclamation that he's going to have 15 more years, Isaiah says, let them take a fig cake, means like a poultice or a warm plaster, and apply it to the ulcerated sore and he will get well. So in answer to Hezekiah's prayer, God says, in essence, I hear you. I will heal you. Now apply this remedy. Both are happening at the same time. And part of that is a part of God's providence. They might say, now wait a minute. God's in control. He says, protect us so we don't need to post a guard. But they posted a guard. Or God is in control, and he said he would add 15 more years to your life so I can eat anything I want and not exercise and do whatever I want, and he's still going to give me 15 years. He goes, no, eat your fruit and vegetables. Apply this remedy. And get some more exercise, Hezekiah. God promised 15 more years of life, but there were some other things that factored into that. Here's one more example. This is a good one from the New Testament. It's from Paul. Paul's one of my favorite heroes. I mean, he's just got so many great stories. And uh, he was always putting himself out there for the kingdom. As I mentioned last week, he was on a boat going all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, so he knew a lot about seafaring and boats and stuff. Well, this is found in Acts chapter 27. Here's the setup. Paul, on a boat, on his way to Rome, there are both sailors and soldiers with Paul on the boat. A storm comes up. There's a biggie. There's a really bad storm. It raged not just for 24 hours or 48, but for days. And everybody on the boat starts to realize, uh-oh, 
I think we're in trouble. We're in really grave danger here. And they even started throwing cargo overboard to lighten the ship because they were starting to take on water. An angel appears to Paul and assures Paul that he's supposed to stand trial before Caesar in Rome. So he's giving him a prophetic word from God that says, you're going to be okay, Paul. You and all the rest of these men, you've got to make it to Rome because I've got something for you to do over there. There will be no loss of life among you, it says in Acts 27-22. No loss of life among you, meaning everybody on the boat. So Paul is able to encourage the guys on the boat. He says, hey guys, good news. No loss of life. The angel has promised this to me. All right, very good. Keep up your courage, men, he says, for I have faith in God that it will be just as I have been told. Then you get to verse 31 in that same chapter, and the men have started to become wigged out. They're really scared because by this time it's been the 14th night of this storm. I tell you what, 14 nights of that kind of stuff out there on the Mediterranean Sea, no thanks. They started lowering the lifeboat. Paul says, oh, stop right there. He says, you can't do that. What do you mean we can't do that? This storm is horrible. We've got to get up there. He says, no, God has promised that there's not going to be any loss of life. But here's the caveat. You have to stay with the ship. That was part of what had been told them. Unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. Acts 27, 31. So Paul is saying, yes, we're going to obey God and trust that he is sovereign, but we can't just do our own thing and throw a lifeboat, a lifeboat, through a lifeboat. So I became Canadian all of a sudden. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I apologize to our Canadians because you don't say lifeboat. <laughs> they were going to throw the lifeboat out there and trust that now we're going to get swept ashore. He goes, no, no, we're, we're supposed to run aground. That's part of God's plan, but we have to run aground in this ship. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. And here's an important example. God's plan has been fulfilled and you trusted him enough that he is still sovereign and so you did what he asked you to do. That's a part of all, all this stuff in there. Did they have free will? Yes, they did. Did God give some stipulations? Yes, he did. Did they follow the stipulations in this case? Yes, they did. Were they saved? Yes, they were all saved. It all came out the way God told them it would. Here's another one. This is a good one. This is uh, one from Pentecost. This was right when Peter was going to preach that wonderful, huge sermon to all these people that were gathered there in Jerusalem. It was after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit comes upon the believers. They were doing strange things early enough in the day that people were saying, isn't that a little too early for them to be tipping the bottle? And he says, no, 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 we're not drunk. The Holy Spirit has come upon us. What you're seeing is an evidence of some prophecy that's coming true because it was prophesied by the prophet Joel that these things would happen on that day. And he even uses some of the words from Joel to explain the behavior of the people around there. Here's a phrase from those words from the prophet Joel. Maybe they'll sound familiar. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that a great phrase? That was something prophesied way back in the Old Testament. Peter is quoting that and saying that here. It gets quoted later on in the New Testament as well, as I uh, can recall. And so all these people were behaving in very strange uh, ways. And he says, that sounds to me like everyone who calls on the name of the Lord sounds like there's choice involved. There's free will. If I call on the name of the Lord, that's my choice. If I choose not to do that, then that's a choice, right? So that's free will at work. 
But if they are saved, then that's a part of God's sovereignty. But listen to some additional words from Peter's message. This is interesting because we're seeing the juxtaposition of these twin principles at work. Verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know, this man who was handed over by the, and check out this phrase, handed over by the premeditated plan and foreknowledge of God. Boy, that just screams God's sovereignty, doesn't it? And then he says, but this man was handed over and you executed him by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. That sounds like man's responsibility. That sounds like free will was involved in their choice to nail him to a cross. Verse 24, but God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held in death's power. Again, God's sovereignty. Both are involved. God is sovereign in those events, and yet there was free will involved all through Jesus' arrest, death, and crucifixion. I, for one, because I have a pretty simple, tiny pea brain, enjoy boiling things down into their simplicity. I like things to be in their nice, neat little boxes. And I prefer to have a right answer and a wrong answer. Mostly because I think I'm right all the time. And I want to be able to defend my side because that's the right side. And I think there are probably other human beings who might feel the same way. I don't know if you do or not. But we tend to want things simple. But some principles, especially when it comes to a perfectly integrated character of a holy God who's so much bigger and unfathomable than we can wrap our pea brains around, are less easy to put into tiny, easy-to-understand categories. There's a mystery to this great God of ours, but I trust that He is sovereign and He is governing everything in the universe while at the same time allowing free will to happen on the part of human beings. I trust that to be true. And there's a bit of faith involved in that. I mentioned last week what Paul said. I'm going to quote him again because it's so good about God's wisdom and knowledge. This is from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. That's so true. Our finite minds cannot comprehend how God can be both sovereign and yet allow all of our free will to be involved in carrying out all of his great plans. But both are true. So the question about God's sovereignty, this is what I enjoyed when I had a a brief visit with uh, Tim Buck's father, who was trying to teach me how to say, how you doing? And uh, he sat at the table with Callie and me. We had a great discussion. And he, he had a lot to say about God's sovereignty. We had a great... This is not the kind of thing that most people discuss at wedding receptions. But he had a lot of good things to say. And one of the things that he said was, it all comes down to, related to God's sovereignty, says who? And he says it with this nice northeastern accent, you know, New Hampshire accent. Says who? And that's true. We have to find out, well, says who? And how can we trust that whoever is saying that's who is giving us this authoritative statement? How do we know it's really true, that it's him, and we can trust that authority? Well, that's why the book of Job is so helpful for us, too. The ladies went through this study this summer, I believe, 
And Job is going through all this turmoil. He's lost so much family. Oh, it was horrible things that have happened to him. And he's got some friends that are trying to be helpful maybe, but sometimes they're not terribly helpful because they have lots of ideas about how they think this might have happened and why. And finally, toward the end, in, in chapter 38, God asks Job just a whole series of machine gun questions. He just fires them out there. And let me read just a few of them. I boiled them down because we'd run out of time if I read the whole chapter. But if you get a chance, it's a great chapter. He says, I have some questions for you. I'm reading this from the message because it just flows nicely. I have some questions for you, Job. And I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. Don't you sense a little sarcasm? I think it's hilarious that we find sarcasm here, but certainly he would say, you know, hey Job, certainly you would know that because of your size. Uh, who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? Hmm. And have you ever ordered morning, get up, or told dawn, get to work? Do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives? So you can take them by the hand and lead them home when they get lost? Why, of course you know that. Why, you've known them all your life, haven't you? You've grown up in the same neighborhood with you. Sarcasm, sarcasm. In the NIV, that last sentence says, Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. And you can tell that if Job were on the receiving ends of these questions, he's not asked to respond to them. These are rhetorical, but it's supposed to make him think. And God doesn't ask questions because God doesn't know the answer. <laughs> God is trying to make Job think, and because Job is available to us, it's making us think. Were we there? Well, no. Were we old enough to know all that? Well, no. Were we there when it? No. The answer is no to all this stuff, because we're so puny. We're just so tiny. And then he says, obviously, God doesn't ask Job these questions because he needs the answers. He wants Job to recognize how tiny he is in comparison with this God who has this vast universe under his control. Job wasn't there when God was setting all these things in the universe in motions, and the stars sang, and the angels sang. He wasn't there when all that happened. We weren't either. But as I've mentioned numerous times in these series, including this topical series, there's abundant evidence, not just in Scripture, but abundant evidence all around us that there's an intelligent designer at work in sovereign control over this universe of ours. And so the biggest and most important piece of evidence that I need, and I really need to look there as I consider whether God cares or not, is the cross. It all keeps coming back to the cross. That's where we start to find the most important evidence that helps us get a handle on what God is like. That's where we see the true heart of God, Remove the cross, and you're left with far more questions than answers. Look to the cross, and you can see the most important answer to the most important question, which is, well, what does God think about this mankind that he's in charge over? And even in the most quoted verse about God's love, John 3.16, we see both God's sovereignty and man's free will at work. Notice this. As God so loved the world that he, this is his sovereignty, gave his only son 
Clearly, that is because of his sovereign will. So that whoever, now even the word whoever means that it could be chosen by different people, not just one person, but by whoever. So that's a a choice that needs to be made. So there's free will entering into that word. Believes in him. Belief is a choice as well. So there's free will at work. Will not perish, but will have everlasting life. There's God's sovereignty again. Just in this one verse, you can see both sovereignty and free will coexisting perfectly because God's attributes coexist perfectly. And those attributes came together perfectly and poetically and lovingly and sacrificially and eternally on the cross. Let me close with this true story. I heard this one a long time ago, and I love it. I've kept it in my back pocket, and it came out perfectly for this message. This is a true story about a young lady who was working with high school-aged kids in the youth group at her church. And she involved the kids in a funny skit in the fellowship hall one evening, and they put whipped cream in a pie pan, and that was supposed to be used to go in the face of somebody that was seated there, and they had some plastic and stuff around there. But whoever was supposed to do that got a little carried away, and some of that whipped cream made it beyond the person and onto the really nice outfit from this very prim and proper lady who was seated nearby. She was the Women's Missionary Union Director, And that created even more frivolity and hilarity because most of the people knew her and they were watching her to see how she was going to react to that. And she busted out laughing and they thought, okay, I I guess we're okay. So all that happened. And at that same time, in the same room, was a young man going to seminary who had visited that church that night. And he kind of liked the way that young lady was handling these youth and her outgoing nature and all that stuff. So he asked this young lady out on a date. And they went on a date. And then they started going to church together. And they wound up going to the altar together. And they got married. And a couple of years later, a little girl was born whose name was Kathy. And four years later after that, a little boy was born. Those were my parents. That's how they met. Can you imagine God's sovereignty that allowed a pie in somebody's face to be the reason why I am here today? That's nuts. (laughs) Thank you, Brother Mark. For those of you who couldn't hear it, he said, somehow that fits. (laughs) But my sister and I grew up in that family with this story in our history. Hi, Kathy, if you're watching after the fact, because you couldn't watch it while it was streaming. But anyway, I'm so grateful that God who is sovereign enough knows what he's going to put in place for all the right reasons and free will somehow factors into all that stuff too. That's bizarre to me. But oh man, doesn't it just take the, take the guesswork out of a lot of that stuff? Doesn't it allow us to relax into his grace? Because we tend to sweat so many of our decisions. I was sweating some of them this, this morning. And I was working myself into anxiety over the fact that we could not live stream again today. And I'm reminded by this sermon, God's sovereign. He's got this under his control. He's got the coronavirus under his control. He's got churches all around this globe under control. The missionaries that we help support in the different locations and all the stuff they're they're dealing with. He's got parents trying to deal with kids getting back to school or whether they should keep them and go virtual again, all those kind of decisions that are being made. He's got all of these decisions under his control because he's God and we're not. 
I think that's good news, and I'm grateful for that. And I would like to close by thanking God for being sovereign and by reminding us that we can place our lives completely under His control because He loves us and does everything for our good if we'll trust Jesus Christ because Jesus is the way into that grace. Let's pray. Father, I personally needed this particular topic this week. Maybe it was no accident that this is the one we landed on in this topical series. But I'm also reminded of just how freeing it is to trust you. And that trust means that I get to relax and quit trying to change things that I have no power to change. Give me that wisdom to know that when I'm up against something that I can't change, that it's out of my control, I can trust you to work it out. I'll do everything I can with my human responsibility to make good decisions because I want to be wise in the Lord. I want you to guide me through your Holy Spirit. But there's so many things in our world right now that are just way out of, of our control. And we just can't do a whole lot about it. And so that's when we need to relax. And I pray that you'll help us, each one of us, do that. Thank you for Jesus, for showing us how much you care about us, and for taking care of the biggest problem we had, which was sin. And I pray that if there's somebody who needs to take that step, they will do so. They'll trust you with their life and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life and get to know him as my Lord and Savior so that he can continue to transform me into his image. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.